Welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. Today, we're going to cover a tough topic, one that transcends race, religion, and class and has lifetime effects. Our topic is child sexual abuse. Here are some facts that you will find disturbing and shocking. One in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before the age of 18. The younger the victim, the more likely it is that the abuser is a family member. Of those molesting a child under the age of six, 50% were family members. And lastly, child sexual abuse can have lifetime impacts on survivors especially without support. It can impact educational outcomes, lead to heightened symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, suicide, drug abuse, higher likelihood of teen pregnancy, and chronic health issues. Our guest today, David St. Romain, lived this existence. But you know what? He's also proof that you can rise above it and succeed in life and lead. Look, I can't wait for him to share his story and his GTFO moment today. But I want to share his bio first because he's quite remarkable. David St. Romain is a singer-songwriter and a hell of an entertainer. The music of DSR, which he also goes by, defies easy categorization, and in so many ways, so does the man himself. Born in Louisiana, David has steadily built his reputation as an entertainer, playing high-energy, musically diverse shows-driven, by what may be his biggest asset, that powerful, soul-drenched voice. And in a couple of minutes, you're going to hear his voice and you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Opportunity came knocking in spring 2007 when he was selected to compete on the fifth season of USA Network's country competition, Nashville Star. Besides the invaluable national exposure that the show brought him, David also performed on the 40-city Nashville Star Tour and had the chance to interact with many of the half-million fans who voted for him. Well, since then, David has had hits such as 2010's That's Love and 20 Years Late. In 2015, he released his first all-inclusive album, Glory, with a title track written by him and his buddy, Tommy Two-Tone, who I remember very well because I'm a child of the 80s. In 2016, David was offered the chance to front Vidalia, a Louisiana flared rock and country band that had multiple previous Billboard success with hits Louisiana and Swamp Assassin. Most recently, in 2018, David launched the LP Look at Us Now, a legacy making album that brings real life topics to a lyrical forefront and guitar riffs from the depths of rock. And to quote David, I feel like I've just made the best album of my life. David, I am so glad to have you here with me today. You're just amazing. Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been introduced that way. That's well, so awesome. 
This is all you, man. This is all you. <laughs> Fighting back the emotions already. I know. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Holly. And thank you, everyone, for uh, listening and, and supporting your program and, and your efforts to help people get the F out. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so succinctly put. I appreciate that. Well, I know today is um, a heavy conversation, um, but I got to say I'm really proud of you for everything that you've done for yourself, your career, and your family, you know, despite the obstacles you had early on. And I'm just really impressed with that. And I know that you will be an example for others. Thank you. So. I appreciate that. Um, but before we get into my questions for you today, I always talk about this. How do we know each other? How do we meet? Well, I, what, three weeks ago, four weeks yeah. ago, yeah. we got a uh, I got a text message from our mutual friend, Wendy Lipsy. Yes. Yes. Who uh, sounds like has been a childhood friend of yours. Uh, and also she uh, has been a big supporter of mine for many years. So we met when That's Love uh, was released. Wendy was going through a lot of uh, uh, medical issues with her uh, her organs and she was going through transplant moments in her life were just obviously huge moments and she somehow got connected with my music and she's told me this amazing story that she was laying in her hospital bed listening to my record uh, and it really helped her and I just man that that just hits home big time I'm so honored to be able to share in people's lives that way well, you had an impact on her and she adores you. And um, she spoke so highly of you. And she was like, you got to talk to David. He's got a great, great story. So thank you, Wendy, for connecting us. Absolutely. And now we're here. And now we're here and we're doing this. Um, I have so many questions for you. But before we get started, give us a little bit of background on yourself. So I was born in Louisiana and, um, you know, my dad uh I grew up around a very close South Louisiana Catholic family. And so we were a very close family growing up, including our cousins and our aunts and uncles. We really all grew up around each other. We spent a lot of weekends together. Um, then my dad, we moved us to the East coast of Florida as young people, uh, as a young family, I was about third grade at the time and he was in the car business. And in the eighties, you know, it took us to Florida. We spent about six years there. I'm going to give you a real short recap, but about six years there in Florida. And then we came back to Louisiana and uh, to the central side of Louisiana. Uh, and then I ended up uh, my third year in high school, moved back down to Baton Rouge. Uh, so just to say, you know, by the time I got out of high school, graduated, I had been in seven schools, two States, Jeez. four cities. And so um, getting to know new people was never an issue for me. Getting to, uh, you know, try to learn how to be comfortable in new environments, that was definitely um, definitely something I pra- had a lot of practice at. I joined the National Guard when I was uh, a year out of high school. My, I was 19. I joined the Guard following the footsteps of my brother and my father. Uh, that really helped me to not end up um, on crack right now, probably. Uh, given my circumstances early on uh, and where a lot of my uh, my friends have, have ended up, I would say my high school friends included, um, and or, or in some really bad situation where they, you know, their circumstances have taken them. I, I had the military to help curtail that. 
and really teach me uh, about taking my, uh, you know, breaking you down and building you back up. And so I was really fortunate to have that military background. Moved to Nashville right after that, began making records. Um, you know, the story's a lot deeper than this, but I want to give you sort yeah. of the thumbnail version. We ended up, I got married, ended up back, you know, Nashville Star. It was just, there's a whole lot between, but we, um, you know, I was in Nashville till I was about, was there for my first time for about four months. Then I came back, then I went back and made another, then was there for a few years, made my first album, DSR, and 2000, 99, 2000, 2001. That's been 20 years. I can't it. With some incredible musicians and really opened the door to me to uh, that world, to the to the creators of Nashville, the ones that are behind the scenes. And then started working with another producer, then ended up on Nashville Star, which obviously opened my audience and fan base up massively. I had also been touring around the country in small bars for years. Uh, pretty much in every state. And so uh, uh, after Nashville Star made my first, I would, my second album uh, in 2011, where we had some charted success, top 60. Woohoo! That's a big deal. That's a <laughs> big deal. It was fun. But made our first music video. So I really got the chance to see a lot of the real way things were done, especially during Nashville Star. And, um, and then after Nashville Star, moved back to Louisiana. Uh, and then began uh, working on another album. And then there's, there's just, you know, I think we'll get into some of the details of the later time here soon in this podcast. Right, right, right. Well, um, I want to go back to one of the earlier questions because clearly you're an artist. What was it about music that you would gravitate to? So my dad, kid? my dad is a great singer, like a really talented singer. And so oh. growing up, it was like the sixties, all the doo-wops and all the, you know, he really loved Neil Diamond and he loved Kenny Rogers, uh, who just passed. And, you know, we, we grew up with this singing around us at all times. My grandmother was a singer, never professional, but, um, and my dad really wasn't a professional singer. He did do a little semi-professional thing in, in, uh, college, but, mostly was raising kids. And so I, I was really young. I was about, I think about seven, maybe eight years old. I knew, I just knew already. Cause I was always, I was the third of three boys. I needed to grab, grab attention where I could get it. And I had, <laughs> I had been blessed, and, uh, you know, early on. And so I could sing like the, the new kids on the block, and I could sing like the, you know, that was my era and your era, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, and so I, I could do that boys to men and all that R&B stuff. And it was just naturally there. So I would just begin pushing it out uh, with choirs and, you know, uh, musical theater. I started a musical theater on the East Coast where musical theater was pretty big. And uh, and then gravitated more toward, then I started playing guitar uh, moved into rock and country and kind of mixed it all this flavor that made this roux that we call here in Louisiana, which is, if you're right. not familiar, it's just like a mixture of everything, but yeah, turn, turns into this black thing. And it's, and I mean, in color of the roux, <laughs> it's like yeah. this, this dark thing that's like mix of all of the above. And so right. goes fitting with Louisiana because that's what we are here. We're just a mixture of all wonderful different cultures. So. And your music certainly displays that because you can do almost anything. And your voice is amazing. And it's so soulful. Thank you. Thank you. And um, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that with us, because I kind of wanted a little background on how you got into music itself. 
tell me this, and then I'll go into more questions. How did Nashville Star change your life? Oh, everywhere. <laughs> I mean it. <laughs> let me see. Let me see how to say this. I love that y'all can't see me because you don't see the emotions welling up in me. <laughs> you can might be able to hear it if I if I start to stutter, but I'm uh boy. Nashville Star was incredible, incredible. Yeah. I mean, what my um my brothers that helped me get onto there that that were the guys that that produced the show. They've become like brothers to me now. Um, you know, they, they told me later, they were like, just add water. That's what we called you. <laughs> and I was like, wow, what? like, what does that mean? And I didn't, you know, I'm too dumb to know when that, those things mean in there. <laughs> TV people are really smart. They know what they're doing. And, and they, you know, they, they looked at me, they said, we knew whatever we threw at you, you could just, you would do it. And it didn't matter. And it was like, I guess adapting. And so what I'm talking about is being a child, you just adapt. But Nashville star, man, it was you know, it started out, you know, when I started the audition process, you know, I'm around all these other talented people, but I, my ego had, you know, really, I was pretty unconscious of a lot of my ego at the time. And I think that I really felt like I could do, I could not, I, I didn't really care if I won. I was just going to do the best I could do, which I knew was going to be better than most at that time. I felt that way. Sure. And I think that's kind of scary to admit that, but it's true. I mean, I felt like I could bring it. There's no doubt. I'm going to bring it. If, if that's you, confidence, you had the confidence. And it's funny because Blake Shelton, the first show, he goes, man, I just love your confidence. And it's like, I'd been playing on stage for, by that time I was 28 years old. So I'd been playing on stage for 10 years and I'd been playing and I'd done showcases in Nashville. I had been through the gambit of trying to get a record deal and not getting a record deal. So you know, all of these things had happened to me as a performer already that I didn't, I didn't need to be told that I could do it. I already kind of knew mm -hmm. that I could do that part of it. Um, but I'd never really had the opportunity to be recognized by the industry. And so I wanted, um, you know, I'd spent time trying to get a record deal, but I'd never spent time with the public on a national level. So it's one thing to go to the industry and say, hey, 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 believe in me. But it's another thing to go to the public and have them believe in you, because that's really what we, and I don't want to get in a long conversation, but that's what, in the end, that's what we need. We don't necessarily need the industry to love us. We need the people to love us. The direct-to-consumer idea, and, and when, you, when you're 28 and you've never been in the industry, you don't really know any about this, anything about this. You're just like, oh, I want to be a, I want to be a star. I want to be a star, and I had been wanting to be a star my whole life. So it was, it's happening in my eyes. National star was my chance to be a star. I had had that. That was the moment, and right, uh, I was around all of these. You know, Blake Shelton, Randy Owen was a was a judge on our show, and Randy. That's a story I shared with you before we got on here. You know, Randy really became a huge influence in my life from then on and is still massive, massive influence around all of my work and, and serving others. Right. So right. you're still very connected to him. I know he's been, he's made a big impact on you. Definitely. Um, and I mean, I'm looking at our notes. You had over half a million people vote for you like you're saying you really like need the that. public guys told me that's something a lot i don't that's know something. it doesn't matter if it was 300 or well it, it's, i was just it's also validation i think that comes from their hearts you know they they're you're great at your craft 
David. So, um, I, I don't know. I just think that it's a lot, it's a lot to appreciate. And, and I'm really proud of you, of course, cause we're both Louisiana natives, you know, and right. because you've, you've come so far. Um, and I know you've worked really hard for it. Um, I'm going to pivot over to your story. Um, it's a heavy story. Yeah. And, um, I, it's okay. I want to, I want to ask you what, made you decide to share your story of sexual abuse because you have a history and then you had your personal GTF moment, but let's just start with the story so that people can understand. So all this beautiful flowers and rainbows that we just painted (laughs) has a really dark side to it. (laughs) And the dark side was that, um, you know, I was came from a family of three boys, like I said, very connected, close Catholic family in Louisiana. Um, and so there was a lot of family time as an extended family and my family, um, was impacted or I should say infiltrated by an, by a step grandfather who sexually abused every child in our family. And that was alive up until he got caught, uh, until he was, you know, exposed. So that went on prior to me being alive all the way till I was six years old. Um, and I believe that the time period for that was about 10 years, maybe 12 years. So, uh, my oldest cousin is about 12 years older than me. I mean, about six years older than me. And so when I was six, I can distinctly remember, um, and I had no, up until that moment, I had no clue. So I may have been a victim of my grandfather, step-grandfather, uh, but I actually didn't know. At the time. Is it, it was just because it was normal for you? It was just kind of like how you were. I literally can't see a moment no. where my step grandfather is sexually assaulting me. Really? So I don't recall that happening to me by him. What I do recall was there was, you know, some modeled behavior by uh, cousins and whatnot that uh, happened to me that I was, mo- you know, experimented on or modeled on. Oh. And it's not, you know, to, to not say that that's abuse is not because I don't think that there's a version of that of, of abuse or that some version of that is abuse. I definitely think it's abusive, but it's not fair to blame a child who has been sexually abused for, for, for acting out on that same behavior, modeling that behavior, especially yeah. a child at the age of 10, 11 years old that doesn't right. have a clue that what they've been taught by this horrible person, this horrible thing is not right. And so, um, you know, so we, so knowing that all my life, I've never held it against my family members, remember that were, you know, that, that had done that to me. And I love that person with all my heart and would protect that person in any battle and fight all day until the days till I die, because I, 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 my heart just breaks for that person. So, um, but that happened, you know, probably I think that started happening to me as early that I can actually recall a moment in my grandparents' house where, you know, one of my cousins was acting out on me, uh, you know, modeled behavior right. that they had been taught. Um, I was about four. And so, uh, but that systemic, I hate that word, but that systemic. It's true though. It's abuse true. that happened in my family affected my family and more than just myself. It affected all of my cousins and what their lives ended up being. It affected uh, 
my parents. It affected my aunts and uncles. It affected my grandparents and our relationship with my grandmother obviously changed, uh, seeing as she didn't divorce him even through prison and out of prison. Um, it affects, so the loyalty factor there, um, was really in question of who are you really, you know? And so there's just all of these things that affected our family that affected me eventually, you know, because I was the last child in the family for six years. So I I didn't, in our family, I was the baby forever for a long time until Zach came along, my my little cousin. And um, now he's grown and has his own kids too, right? So we're all grown. Right. But, but we were for six years. I was the baby, so everybody really loved on me, and, and it, it really made me codependent in a lot of ways on things. And but also, um, you know, just I could get away with things. I could say what I felt. There was no boundaries. Plus, we were all kind of our boundaries were all screwed up based on what had happened to us. Right. And so, right. but that just continued on through my uh you know six seven eight years old and when we moved to florida we had spent um you know my dad and mom worked a lot my dad was in the car business so he worked like 80 hours a week and my mom tried everything she could to to manage along working a 40 hour a week job she tried to manage three wild boys like really wild boys and so (laughs) that was pretty much impossible and we didn't really give our our mom much breaks many breaks and so um you know, my oldest brother, he was pretty wild up until high school. Then he joined the Navy. Now is a high-ranking officer in the Army Who, who to my brother out there and all the military guys because I'm really proud of them and, and proud of him and his leadership and, and what he's done. Um, my middle brother, you know, he went through some, some you know, he spent early time in, or later times in high school in jail. And so I watched a lot of – I just watched a lot of my, my brothers go up and down. And then my brother, Do you my think, David, this was because of what happened as children? Oh, I, Absolutely. I think it affected all of us in, in different ways. Yeah. I think right. we all managed our lives the way we thought we could get through these things. And and I don't want to speak to my, uh, on my brother's circumstances. I can't right. tell you what happened to them specifically uh, or if things did happen to them because that's not really my place. But I would say that our family's circumstances definitely affected our whole family, our entire family. And so... Um, and but and I'll quickly get to this, but my because I know we're twenty minutes in already. But my no, we're doing fine. My brothers, you know, and I had this thing growing up. I mean, we were always like, who had the girl? Like we always had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend from like eight years old on. Never did I not have a girlfriend. <laughs> and so because I had been taught early on uh, how to. The the I had not been taught, but my I had been introduced to sex in such an unhealthy way already at four years old. At, at intimacy and sex and love were not the same thing already. It was just a weird. We were. I was sort of indo- I don't want to say indoctrinated, but we were sort of in introduced into this lifestyle early on that. We had to have a girlfriend, had to be kissing our girlfriends, or we had to be physical. There was always this physical intimacy and like this, we had to, almost like a competition thing that we were like, oh, I got the girl or I got, oh, I got the finest one. Or I, got, I mean, it's like the stupidest stuff that boys normally do already, right? We're all, all already like, oh, we're the coolest kid or we're the, you know, we got the good, best looking girlfriend. That's what we were like already as kids. But then you, you elevate that. You know, you, you hyper sexual, I mean, we were very hypersexualized as children, 
And so as, um, I wasn't sexually active that, that by any means on my own, um, at but was it point, a way but, to get attention? But it was, was a way it, to get attention, definitely. Right. It was, was where the codependence comes back in. It's right. how you get attention. Exactly. I can understand that, especially being in a family of boys and busy parents. You know. So, and, and then there were even like mom and dad would drop us off. Like I would go spend the weekend at my buddy's house. And that leads me to like where my, where my actual abuse, where I can point at it and name it. I was 10. I'm hanging out. I'm already hanging out with this buddy of mine from school and I would go and spend weekends with him. Well, throughout these periods of time, I would get to know his neighbors. I would get to know the people around him because I would spend a lot of time there. So the little neighbor girl, I was, she was my girlfriend. Well, her uncle would spend like, he's in his twenties and he would spend time with 10, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, all the boys in the neighborhood. He would hang out with us. He was a predator. And he was a predator. And so he would take the time to groom. And that's a word that I want everybody to listen to. There are groomers out there that know how to infiltrate your family. They know how to get to your children. They're doing it through sports. They're doing it through neighbors. They're doing it through uncles and grandfathers. And and nine, like so high, such a high percentage rate are men. And it's not because men are all bad. Or it's not because, you know, masculinity, whatever, all that crap. No, it's because that's what is the facts. These are facts. Yeah, yeah. The facts are that, you know, and so this man uh, one day finally pulled the trigger and he on me and a group of us. And he had probably already done some stuff with some other of the, the other boys in the group. And I just didn't know. But he brought a um, I'm just going to tell a story. He he was like hey let's watch some porn and i think my buddy's parents were not home and so he brought us all we all went over to my buddy's house apartment right there and everybody was poor where we were at this was poor folks and and so we um you know we he just did what he you know he did what he did to to basically talk us into you know, modeling behavior. It just goes back to, you know, and so as a child, you're codependent on acceptance already. And now I'm trying to be accepted by these people. You know, it's like, it's just so weird. And I was 10 years old. Did you realize when that, that when that, when that happened, did you realize that it was not right? Cause you had modeling no, issues when you I were younger and then it, then, then it repeated itself. Then it repeated itself later. And, you know, at the tender age of 10. Yeah, no, no, I definitely didn't. Even at 10, I didn't realize it was wrong. Okay. Okay. Uh, even at 10, I was still like, cause at that point we were already hypersexualized. So we were already at a point where it was like, sex was a big part of getting attention. Sex was part of how we were going to be cool. And, and, um, also didn't feel like this made me, you know, at the time I didn't question sexuality, but I started to, as in later on and, you know, the, what, what this did was manifest into, um, you know, just more behavior, unhealthy behavior. And, you know. You had to cope somehow. Yeah. You but I didn't even cope. know I was coping. <laughs> right. I didn't even realize I was coping. I didn't realize I was coping until probably uh, I started traveling to perform and I met some folks who were just flat out honest with me. And it was like, you know, then it was my, the person that became a best friend of mine who is still walking this walk with me. And, you know, and 
as he got sober, he started to share with me about where, uh, you know, some of my addictions may have been manifested from, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. may have manifested from. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, that's just, it, it makes sense that you would have to find ways to cope, especially if it wasn't something that Absolutely. was Absolutely. And, you know, discussed. getting on, on stage, well, no, we never discussed it. And ironically, with my family going through this already, I would have, um, you know, I would have hoped, or I, I wished that, I'm so, somebody's showing up at our house, so the dogs That's are okay. Um, I wish that uh, my parents would have been a little bit more willing to um, ask questions, but how can I expect my parents to know what to do when they have no skills built, trained? You know, when they've been not taught, when they have not been taught and utilize the skills that they don't have. How are they going to utilize skills they don't have? So that's part of why where my GTFO moment comes. So just to quickly go there, I mean, I became that hypersexual lifestyle of just always having to achieve, get the girl, always having to go there, get there. I became very sexually active as a teenager, and that just manifested into my music. And as I performed, uh, I almost performed to try to win over the whole crowd and whoever was there and it was like, I've got to make them want me sexually. And so everything became based around sexual gratification. Wow. You needed that constant approval. Absolutely. And I think that was, um, I think that was visible to some people already, even on Nashville Star. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's weird because I go back to it. And I'm like, man, I really overdid some things. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm embarrassed, but you know, what do you do? You can't relive those Can't moments. change it. Can't change it. And you know, I was like a child on there, even though I was 28 and there were certain things that I was doing that were more adult, adulting type things. I was still kind of a child in some ways. And so the growth after Nashville star 2017, you don't even have to ask the question. I'll just kind of get there. 2017, I was basically, I had my self-worth my self-esteem was just in the toilet. I had been through, um, you know, the the growth and death of what I thought my career, I thought it was over, kind of like, well, I guess I'm too old now. Can't really do this anymore. Um, chase a neon rainbow, as I like to call it. <laughs> um, and so that, like, am I giving up? What does that mean? What am I living for? Of course, I have children, so I'm living for them and a beautiful wife, but a wonderful life, but at, when you're so deep in the woods, it's hard to see the forest for the trees. So you can't see that light at the end of the tunnel when you're that dark, deep in it. And so I was, I remember being on my knees and holding my son and crying and my a text message went off on, from at that moment. I was literally like, God, please, I don't know what to do. And he slapped me in that moment and said, here's, here's your ticket. And a guy had texted me who was a counselor who uh, was offering some intensive uh, treatment work around sexual addiction. Mm -hmm. And I realized that um, in that moment, God was speaking to me. I asked him for help and he gave it to me. And so I went and put myself through a, a, a very intensive but short in, uh, treatment and came back and shared with my wonderful wife who has been so supportive of my my walk and growth and and from there 
that treatment really allowed me, I became, I got sober, uh, stopped drinking. Of course that comes and goes. I don't, I never really was a hard drinker. Um, you know, so I was, I, that didn't really, that just gave me access to mask the real feelings and to mask the accountability. Sure. So, um, in my own heart, being accountable to my thoughts and my actions. And so, um, you know, what I did was got the F out about a, away from that addiction and, and realized that all the objectivity, all the, uh, um, just the, the unhealthy behaviors, um, you know, with pornography and with, um, you know, there's, there's healthy ways to live sexually in your family. There's a healthy sexual, uh, uh, their uh, habits with your family, but there is also some, a lot of unhealthy activity that, that we do within our own families that we don't realize are unhealthy sexually with our own wives and, and with our own spouses. And so understanding where to, you know, create a safe place for my wife to know how, you know, how, uh, blessed or how, um, beautiful, I think, she is as a human and how, mm -hmm. how much I want to lift her up, you know, learning about that. Right. I didn't right. even know about that. Like I had just not been present in that because I just didn't even realize that I was not doing what I was supposed to be doing. I had been taught the wrong way. You changed your paths though. That's I mean, right. your GTFO moment was your, I mean, you really changed your, your paths. It sounds like you had it wasn't a moment of escape. It was a moment of realization Absolutely. is what it is, how it comes across. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, we're going to need part six, but um, <laughs> I just, you know, I can't in six and a half minutes, I'm going to tell you that I, I laid down Ugh. the music for about a year that no one really knew. And I went, I dug inside in my heart and I, I listened to what I felt like God was telling me. I have to serve other people and stop serving myself. That's my almost my penance a little bit, but I don't look at it as a negative. Like you got to go do safe. No, this is why you're a leader. This is why when I opened, I said you have come out of this and you're leading with it because you're talking about it and you're trying to help other people. I just had to say that because I admire right. that. I admire. I appreciate that. that. I do want to help other people and. You know, um, from not just from where I struggle uh, or where I struggled, because I don't I don't really go out and find sex addicts and say, here, I'm going to help you. <laughs> what I do is, um, you know, I, I took my my ability, uh, my blessing of being a songwriter and I created a, um, uh, of course, a nonprofit, but I created a practice. A, a program where I do collaborative songwriting with survivors of trauma in all populations, not just sexual abuse, but also veterans that have dealt with PTSD, uh, you know, uh, domestic violence victims, um, and, and just people who have, who've dealt with trauma and everyone to recover and sure. need, need help in recovery. And, and so uh, that started right about 2017, 18, 19, and then has now come to fruition to be a real nonprofit that I actually, you know, created. And so uh, Songs of Survivors was, uh, was blossomed and, and from my experience and my ability 
as a songwriter, I wanted to take that and serve others. And so I'm on a mission to serve other folks, serve other people in the ways that I have strengths. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just talking with people. I, you know, I do interventions uh, without training. I don't have any training or anything, and I'm not a licensed it. anything. You lived it. Right. But I have lived it, and I and you know, three weeks ago, I sat down with my bo- my boy from high school, and I'm like, dude, let's talk about why you're shooting up. Let's talk about why you've lost your child because of, you know, why you need to go to rehab today. And and so, we got down to the the nitty gritty of where he was in where he was hurting, and so those those types of uh, things have become part of my daily life, and so I. I just not, I'm not getting paid for it. I don't have any kind of income around it. And, and who knows what God wants me to do there. I'm going right. to continue to try to listen and be a steward of, of the work that he's putting me here to do. This is part of your evolution. You're a musician. You're an artist. That's right. And now you're a server, you know, and it's part of who you are. And, and I'm still writing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I wrote a song about my, my grandmother-in-law to, yesterday. Oh, so, well. As, uh, called Let Go. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's okay. That's oh, that's sorry. the thing. It's okay. She was 93. Bless her. She lived a long life. Yeah, she did. Most she of us hope these... to live that long. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah, I hope that um that I can go as peacefully as she did. Well, so. I'm glad that y- she's lucky that she had you and the family around for Absolutely. for her in the end. So, um Okay, I promise this is going to get lighter. I cannot lie. I've been holding my breath most of this interview because it's just so, it's so heavy and so dramatic. I've been sitting here. I couldn't move listening to what you were saying. So um, I'm going to go into the last heavy question (laughs) and then I'm going to breathe and it'll get easier. Um, David, what do you want others to take away? Your, from your personal story and what advice do you have for others who have experienced sexual abuse? Um, I think immediately two things come to mind. Um, first, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, what you, what you mentioned, uh, Holly early on in the podcast, everyone should listen to one in four girls, little girls are sexually mm-hmm. assaulted, abused or raped before the age of 18. And one in six boys. So if you think that's not a high number of survivors and victims out there, folks, you are not alone. And with that being said, because this is maybe a third thing, but this is a middle thing. I don't know. But anyways, you're not alone and you should not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. It's not your fault. It is not your fault. Because one of the things that that predators will do is try to place the blame on the child. And we live with Mm -hmm. that blame. I was 39 before I told anyone 39. So I beg you if you're out there and you need to share it with someone, I'm here. I'll listen. Facebook message me, direct message me on Instagram. You can email me and uh, you know, maybe she can, uh, Holly, you can share that email, Definitely. but you can do whatever you want to contact me. I will listen because you're a human being and you deserve the right to express this. That's a uh, great message. That's especially this, about being, d- don't feel ashamed. Don't, don't feel ashamed. Don't feel you, ashamed. I mean, cause I'm ashamed sometimes <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I ashamed? No. What the hell did I do wrong? I right. didn't do this. 
you're a victim of circumstances. This this man abused me, and and you have you have you deserve the right to live a, a happy life, to be happy around who you are as a human being. Everyone does. The second thing I would say is there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a light. Even if you cannot see the light and you are in a situation right now where you're doing unhealthy actions, whether or not it's based around sexual unhealthy actions, if you're just, you know, you know what those things are. Everyone out there knows what they're doing as humans, whether or not it's eating too much or eating too many pills or doing drugs sure, or, sure. or acting out sexually. Uh, even in, I mean, there are people that end up doing illegal things sexually around sex. And so, you know, from prostitution to voyeurism to all of the things that are, you know, those are things that you don't just walk up one day at 18 years old and say, I'm going to shoot up. No, you eat a pill or you do something to, 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 you know, mask to, to cope and to numb or you drink. I know that people will take your message to heart today. And I have a feeling a lot of people need to hear this. And I expect that they'll be, be getting in touch with you. And I want to tell you that I, I'm talking to my 10-year-old daughter about abuse, not in detail, but enough to know that if something happens to her, for her to tell me, and, and I'll believe her. We had that conversation on a walk just a couple of days ago because I told her about you. Well, we watched you on Sunday night, of course, on your, uh, on your live uh, webcast. Um, but we talked about it. I'm like, look, if someone ever hurts you, approaches you, you come tell me and I will believe you. She said, you will? I said, absolutely, I will. I mean, listen to that. Your own daughter yeah. didn't even know if you would believe her. I know. She wanted and, to know. And so it's like, And the fact yes. that you, you, know, you don't want to say, hey, I'll go hurt that person because she may care about that person. Right. And, and you don't, I mean, a lot of people don't think about this. So, you know, it could be someone she cares about that is still hurting. So imagine how confusing that is for a child. This person's supposed to love me. This person's supposed right. to care for me. And if they're, yeah. well, this is how they're supposed to love me. So if you don't face these things now with your children and with your siblings, folks, they will think that that is normal love. I know. And they will grow up to believe that, that acting out sexually on other, on taking power and manipulating people with your power is normal behavior. Right. And I mean, business deals, when I'm in a business deal and I feel like somebody's trying to manipulate me, I go into PTSD. I have PTSD in that moment in a business deal. I didn't even realize that until two months ago, three months ago. I, I started shaking during a situation. Oh, no. And I had to call on my life coach, my best friend, who's helped me since day one. Oh, I was 19, 20 years old my buddy from Nebraska. And, and he's like, wait, your body's shaking. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, David, that's PTSD. Let's talk about what this really, why are you feeling this way? I'm like, I'm scared. It's why are you scared? I feel like I'm being manipulated. Well, think about this. You dumbass. Yeah, You've been a manipulated your whole, he didn't call me a dumbass. I called myself a dumbass, but it, you've been manipulated as a child. So you carried this manipulation and as a child. It. You saw but it now. Now I know this. Do you know the freedom that has come from that? Standing in my own way for so many years yeah. because I did not realize 
that manipulation in itself shuts me down physically. I would actually love to have you back to talk more about this topic, because I know there's more. I know you have a lot more to say. So will you come back in season three? <laughs> I would love to if you, if you folks would have me back. I would love to have you back in season three because there's so many layers to this and um, so much more people need to hear, especially from you. So well, I'm honored to be part of your family here. and Part uh, of the family. And to share my experience. And I hope it, I hope it helps somebody out there to know that, like I said, you're not alone and there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Well, that's a great segue. If people want to know more about you or get connected with you, what is the best way to do that? That's a, uh, you know, that's part of my mission over the last <laughs> few months has been to centralize my message on my digital platforms. Um, you know, if you go to my website, davidsaintromain.com, um, it's, it's like, it sounds, it sounds like David with a Catholic lettuce, but, uh, it's, it's it's s t r o m a i n dot com david saint romain looks like david stromain uh, dot com and that's definitely uh, i think the best place sign up for my email list there i did uh, i signed uh, up yesterday thank you i'm very inactive so <laughs> but uh i would say that i'm going uh, i'm on a mission um thank you to some of the motivators out there i'm going to give a shout out to gary v cuz i think you know, that guy has helped me just come out of my shell in so many ways and just really understand how uh, precious life is and, and how much I have the ability to share and help people. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Well, thank you for telling us how to get in touch with you because I have a feeling that you're going to have a lot of DMs pretty soon. So, well, David, yeah, I'm all over him. You can always hit me up <laughs> social media. I'm always there. Yeah. Oh, and live stream every Sunday night, which we've really enjoyed. It's like having a personal concert with you. Absolutely. 8 p.m. Sunday night, Central Standard Time, 8 p.m. on and Facebook. And they can find that on your Facebook page, right? Right. Right. Face I'm actually on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Twitch all right. at the same time. Yes, we watched you. My daughter and I watched you the other night. It was like having a personal concert. It was a lot of fun. So I encourage you listeners to tune in to listen to David. You get to hear more from him. And he's an amazing singer. But we're going to get to that in season three. There's so much more to talk about. That's right. All right, guys. Let me make your podcast longer now. Yeah, <laughs> For guys like me. It's okay. No, this was great. This was a lot of important information and a lot of people needed to hear this. So, and I just admire you for sharing your story because I know you will impact other people's lives, David. So. Thank you. I hope, I, I hope that I can be of some service to folks out there. So thanks so much again, Holly, for having me. Of course, anytime. And you'll, you're coming back soon. Don't forget that. Uh, all right, guys, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of GTFO. Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at GTFO underscore podcast. Thanks.